on Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that got a lot of attention initially, but maybe since have fallen into obscurity or just don't seem to be part of the conversation. We're going to dig them on up and relitigate. On this episode, we're looking at Barry Jenkins' first feature, Medicine for Melancholy, from the year 2008. While Jenkins has gone to be a beloved and influential filmmaker, his first film has been, it seems to us, mostly forgotten. Perhaps because his second film, Moonlight, was such an unbelievably huge critical success. My name is Liam O'Donnell. I'm one of your hosts of Forgotten Gems. And with me, as always, is the ever-tedious Doug Tilly. Hey, Doug, how are you? Liam, you can call me whatever you want. I'm so happy to be back <laughs> recording with you that I feel like you can't wipe this smile off my face. Uh, even when we're talking about a, fair, a fairly melancholic story there in the title movie. Uh, but Liam, we've been apart for a while mm-hmm. because you've had a lot of things happening in your life. Uh, and there's a lot of things happening in, in the world as a whole. And how exciting is it to be talking about a movie together on a podcast once again? Doug, you know this is the first thing I've done in any way, shape, or form since I moved into this house. And even now, we are recording this podcast before most of my belongings have arrived at this house. So other than in a hotel room, I have not slept in a bed for almost three weeks. So that's fun. I should let the listeners, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and say that Liam... Uh, thought up until midpoint last week that we actually wouldn't have had to skip an episode at all, <laughs> that we were going to be able to record. And I think it rapidly <laughs> became clear that that was not a likely thing to happen. Yeah, I hope people enjoyed that episode of Horror Business, which I'm assuming is the crocodile one. I don't Yeah, the most know. recent one. That's right. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it exists, <laughs> and hopefully people listen to it. But uh, yeah, man, I you know this move has actually... Uh, I I don't want to be a negative Nelly, but mm-hmm. not everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. But many of the things that could go wrong have gone wrong, and so I'm I'm now pretty sleep deprived in a new yeah. part of the country, uh, worried about COVID. It's it's all mm-hmm. a thing, man. It's all it's all a stress sandwich. But I agree, taking time out of all that stress and unpacking to get on a microphone and yell at you is really great, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, my wife, before uh, we started recording today, she sat me down for a minute. And she's like, you're making sure that Liam doesn't feel like he has to do this, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm trying to be as sensitive to the fact that that uh, that Liam has a lot of shit going on right now while still needing to get this episode out in 24 hours. Sure, sure. <laughs> as I possibly can. Uh, but Liam, I'm so glad, look, I'm so glad that things seem to be settling down. What is the thing that most went wrong with this uh, this move across uh, into a different oh. state? Oh, Dougie Doug. One thing would not possibly cover it, but let's just say uh, the first thing that went wrong was that we had the wrong date for the pod. So for those of you who don't know, we, we got a pod to move, and you pack the pod, and they come pick it up, and we had the wrong day they were coming to pick it up. So we had to delay the pod by one day, and delaying the pod by one day moved its arrival date here from July 28th to August 4th. Uh-huh. So... That's what I'm, I can't do math right now because my brain is broken. But I think that's sure. a week. That's about a week difference. So that's a yeah, one sounds- one more week without our couches or beds or anything that gives comfort to our lives. Mm. Uh, and then 
over the process of like moving out here and staying various places and stuff, we had not one, not two, but three different uh, air mattress fail on us like just completely <laughs> deflate midnight so like ruining our sleep for that night oh god i've had that happen before it is a nightmare <laughs> and well i won't highlight that much more that went wrong i will say this doesn't this doesn't necessarily go wrong but it's not nice that we just didn't have enough room so i actually this week had to drive back to pa to get the rest uh-huh. of my stuff solo and then drive back to, sh- to chicago area so I'm just tired, Doug. That's all. And I, I will say, I would have canceled on you in a second with no uh, remorse <laughs> of course. at all. But the reality is I did finish this movie. I managed, knowing I made time to watch the movie, I was like, well, then we're definitely going to record because I'm not going to not record having watched this movie. <laughs> uh, did at any point, I, I, I know that listeners probably don't give a fuck about what's going on in your life and any of that sort of thing. Sure. But at any point, while all of these things were going wrong, did you yell at the sky Asking God why he forsaken you? No, man, come on. That's not my vibe. <laughs> <laughs> life life sucks, and I don't get the right to pretend it's a surprise what it does. Oh, my goodness, Liam. Well, I predict great things now that you're near the wonderful city of Chicago. Uh, and I hope that by the time that people listen to us on another episode, all your stuff is there. You've moved in. The comfort level is starting to rise. Your stress levels are starting to decrease. And you can forget about the fact that we're in a global pandemic and heading into environmental catastrophe. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie. I I don't want to overstate the case. I think that a lot of people do know that this movie exists. But I think, like me, a lot of folks have known about this movie because of Moonlight. So I, I heard about Moonlight way before it even came out. I think there was a there was a feeling before it really hit theaters that it was going to be a low thing, that it wasn't going to get right. a lot of attention. And so we were in conversations at Lafayette, not really a film school, to show the movie uh, at Lafayette. And they were very open to it until it finally had its normal theater premiere in New York. And mm-hmm. after one weekend the story changed immediately where they were like, yeah. uh, we're going to go ahead and not do that actually, because <laughs> we might actually make some money on this movie. And of course it turns out they did. It wasn't unbelievably huge, but for the level of movie it was, I think it killed. And then it also was critically acclaimed. And since I heard about the movie before I'd even gotten a chance to see it, since I heard about its existence, I had heard about medicine for melancholy. And yet, other than a few people who managed to catch it way back during its festival run, no one I knew had seen it. Like, everyone mm. knew about this. Yeah, he did one other movie, uh, Medicine for Melancholy. Oh, yeah. Did, have you seen it? Oh, no, I haven't seen it. I hear it's good, but I haven't seen it. And that's been the case for me, at least. Probably not for everyone. Since Midnight, or Midnight, since Moonlight came out, is that we've all been talking about there's another movie before Moonlight, but no one was making time to watch it? <laughs> I don't know. I just never got a chance to catch it. I have a question for you, Liam. This is a little bit of an embarrassing question. Yeah. Do you have difficulty remembering the title of this movie? I find I can't keep it in my brain. Every time I'm thinking of it, I I screw up a word. I have to search for it in the last couple of days just because I've been, you know, doing a little bit of research a dozen times. And every single time I have to go to Barry Jenkins' filmography and be like, oh, right, Medicine for Melancholy. I I don't have to struggle to remember it because, well, okay, I have sometimes have trouble immediately bringing it to the tip of my tongue because the name is weird. It like has that alliteration thing going on. Sure. That's weird. 
Mm-hmm. But I don't have trouble remembering it because it's from a story. It's like a Ray Bradbury story, I think, oh. or something like that. Maybe I just said Ray Bradbury. That it, I don't know who wrote it. Some white guy, Charles <laughs> Bukowski. I don't fucking know. But it's a, it's a, it's from a story, and I think. <laughs> I think part of understanding the movie is probably reading the story, but I know neither one of us have read the story, so we're just going to go for it anyway. Um, but I also don't know how closely it relates to that original story it takes its name from. So that's that's why I can remember it. But even though it's one of those titles that because it does have such similar sounds, even though the words are in my brain, what comes out of my mouth might be it's me- me- making melancholy, you know, because like my, my tongue just doesn't want to say medicine for melancholy. So it's uh, it, it takes its title from a short story by Ray Bradbury. OK, it was Ray Bradbury. That's what my brain said. But I was like, I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I would love to know read that story just to see if it has any relationship and it might not have any relationship to this film. I'm not sure. I, I wish I had known that ahead of time because I would have read it. I, I am a fan of Ray Bradbury, even though he's a bit of a difficult character. I have one more question for you. Lee. Yes, yes. So this movie is very Jenkins first. It's called Medicine for Melancholy. Right. And then he made a movie called Moonlight. And then he made If Beale Street Could Talk, right? Yeah, yeah. But don't you kind of wish that his third movie was called Myth Meal Meat Mood Mock? <laughs> what? <laughs> because this is Medicine for Melancholy. And this could be part of his letter M trilogy. Oh, you, you're a real monster. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, understand, I understand that that probably could have rubbed a few people the wrong way. But for me, someone who loves the letter M, I really think that that could have uh, went over well. Uh, if Beale Street Could Talk was the second James Baldwin novel I ever read. So, mm-hmm. no, I'm not trying to mess with it in any way, shape, or form. It is one of my favorite Oh, books. James Baldwin. That's a guy that you have all this fidelity to. But when it comes to Ray Bradbury, you can't even sit down and read a short story. Yeah, what, you, uh, what you just said is not offensive in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Ray Bradbury means literally nothing to me in any way. And James Baldwin is like uh, one of my favorite authors of all time. I just can't believe how this year has radicalized you against white people. <laughs> <laughs> I God, I wish that was it. I mean, why should I care? Give me one reason I should care about Ray Bradbury. Well, he is a particularly strong writer. Uh, and, I mean, I, look, I'm not going to make more of it than, uh, than it's worth. But, I mean, he has written a lot of great and progressive short stories and, and uh, full-length novels that I think are very worthwhile uh, hey, in the field hey, of fantasy and science hey, fiction. hey. Did he write Starship Troopers? No, that was Robert Heinlein. Yeah, who so had... therefore I don't care about him. Yeah, but Robert Heinlein was a fucking weirdo. <laughs> I know. I just was trying to think of, uh, of okay, well, what's a dumb sci-fi thing I have read? And I have read Starship Troopers, so there you go. So uh, not to not to, to get on a, off on a tangent before we take our break, but a few years ago, actually a number of years ago now, I... W- was writing a series of articles for Daily Grindhouse about the television series, the Ray Bradbury Theater, which was a 1980s TV anthology series that was sort of like, you know, Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, except every episode was based on a story by Ray Bradbury. And while I was writing about those episodes, I was also reading the short story that that particular episode was based on. And I did gain, I think, a pretty strong appreciation for his work at that time. He was, he was a very talented writer. I mean, look. What about that song, Liam? Fuck me, Ray Bradbury. Remember that one? So we're going to go ahead and take a break before we get into talking about uh, 2008's Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, We're going to let you know pretty quickly 
whether it's a forgotten gem or some other term we were too lazy to come up with. We'll be right back. You ever think about how black folks are only 7% of the city? Like, you ever realize just how few of us there really are? No, it's true. I don't want to talk anymore. Let's do something. What you want to do? I want to dance. Morning always comes too soon. This is a one night stand. It's only been one night. Can't do nothing about that. from a one-night stand that neither remembers, Micah and Joanne find themselves wandering the streets of San Francisco, sharing coffee and conversation and searching for a deeper connection. It's 2008's Medicine for Melancholy, directed by and written by Barry Jenkins, who you may have heard of from uh, his Oscar almost being stolen by La La Land, fuck them, <laughs> uh, and If Bill Street Could Talk, the movie everyone loved to talk about but no one actually went to see. Uh, you should have, though, because it was very good. Uh, this film stars Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Higgins. You might know Wyatt Cenac from The Daily Show or... Um, what was the show on HBO? Uh, I can't remember what it was called. Problem yeah, Areas show, or something yeah. like that? or mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, and then Tracy Higgins had a small role in one of the Twilight movies. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not putting a lot of respect on that name right there. I mean, uh, let's be clear. I'm saying it that way because I don't understand how that's the case. I think she's actually very good in this movie, but we'll get to that. Um, uh yeah, uh, a lot of other people have small roles, but really the film is them, and that's yeah. sort of what the film is about is their uh, interactions over this 24-hour period. Before we get too much into sort of the details of it as well as some of the themes, I just want to get at you, Doug, with a l- question of what did you think about this movie? Uh, I thought this movie was good. Uh, you know, <laughs> hesitant, it's a movie that I- hesitant good. That was a, that was a hedged bet good. Well, I'll tell you what it. It shows the signs of an extremely talented writer and director. Sure. And, you know, you, you will not mistake this for someone who is untalented. And it reminded me a lot of the kind of independent films that you saw in the late 90s, where it's very talky. It's about two people and their relationship. Uh, and it's also touching on other subjects as they go throughout this experience of, of kind of feeling each other out, getting to know each other. And I love the kind of conceit at the center, which is the one night stand has already happened. So this isn't just leading to them you know, having sex. This is this is them now having to, uh, after this drunken night, which may or may not have been a mistake, having to learn about one another. And they have two extremely different viewpoints on the world. And the way that they still are able to come together and then sometimes drift apart, I found that really interesting and very endearing. It's also a movie that's very much of the year 2008, it, it, to the point where they're searching for each other on MySpace and things like that. Right. Uh, so, but... I think that that is also an endearing quality. I don't think that's a negative at all. Um, I did find some of it a little tedious, I have to admit. Particularly the part near the, well, maybe not near the end, but like in the second half where they go to a club and uh, it's just people dancing for an extended period of time. And I just did, I was starting to lose that. Like that's when I felt like the movie should have really been hitting its emotional core and it felt like it was losing me for a bit but I do think it ends really really strongly I do think it touches on a lot of really issues that I don't necessarily um, there are issues that I care about things like gentrification things like uh, racialization within 
uh, indie cultures and things like that 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 I don't uh, have a lot of direct experience with uh, because I I don't live in a, a major city and uh, but that but stuff that I'm still very interested in. This is very much a movie about San Francisco and its evolving nature uh, and how it has changed since that time as well. So I think if, for me. It's more along the lines of, wow, I found this really interesting, even when I can't relate to some of it directly. It's still something I'm pulling away from, but it also made me more excited for the filmmaker at its core. It's like, I wonder if you polished off some of these rough edges, if he had the money and the talent behind it uh, to to take these concepts and make them bigger and, and, and wider. I wonder what he could do. And of course, we know that he went ahead and did that because I think Moonlight is an absolutely amazing movie. Right. Um, I'm going to agree with a lot of what you said there, actually, Doug. Uh, I'm going to say that um, there are some parts of the film that are clunky for me. Like there's, I think, a very intentional uh, choice being made about the washed out kind of color palette of the film. And I think mm. actually if you pay attention, it shifts by context that parts of the film look a little more vibrant than other sure. parts of the film. And, and it would be easy to write that off as, a technical issue since it's it's very handheld it's very digital video it's very low budget but yeah, apparently like a thirteen thousand dollar budget like extremely yeah, low yes budget. but i think actually there are decisions being made there's mood decisions mm-hmm. being made and i think that's not a big jump for me to make if anyone's seen moonlight a film in which you could argue the lighting and the color choices are one of the characters in the film. A- absolutely. And of course, this has the same cinematographer. I mean, I think anyone who might have thought that about the visual style here, Moonlight would have shut them down because that's right. one of the most visually stunning movies that I could think of in recent years. But that being said, I'm not sure it always is as effective as it mm. could be. I think it's definitely something I'm glad he stuck with and became such a strong element of Moonlight. But just because I know he's doing it on purpose doesn't mean it's always great. I think it's it's right. just a part of the film you know and i'm like okay i guess this is all right um i think that i agree with you the dance sequence i I, it didn't take me out of the movie i didn't find it tedious but i it did feel very 2008 because i think circa 2008 uh having a line about tv on the radio and acknowledging that uh, there was this hip thing going on that lots of people liked but didn't feel welcoming to right everyone that felt very incisive and interesting and 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 it wasn't alone. It wasn't long after 2008 that movies like Afropunk came out. And in fact, the Afropunk Festival got started around that time. Um, there was a real conversation that unfortunately didn't get as deep as it could have. And I think we're circling around to it again now in 2020 mm. around, uh, you know, how alternative cultures are really just about being different kinds of white people, but mm-hmm. that those cultures exist because of the work of black folks. So interestingly, I just saw something today on Instagram about how shoegaze uh, started with a black band in, in London that highly influenced my bloody Valentine. So everyone is going back to the well of my bloody Valentine, not realizing that this all black group out of London really sort of, you know, was the foundation of that sound. And, sure. uh, you know, in other words, this is part of the issue, right? That alternative, uh, a lot of subcultures, right, take pride in the idea that unlike the things that they are sort of replacing, that they are not a culture of thieves. So right. I think everyone knows rock and roll is just stolen from black folks by white people. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. I think mm-hmm. that's just a historical fact at this point. But all of these other subcultures that developed under rock and roll also had black and brown folks at the beginning and then slowly became more white. And I think uh, that is 
part of the feeling uh, that Barry Jenkins is making connection in this movie. Uh, that description is very true of indie music and especially indie dance music, that it, uh, that it was once more colorful and became more white as money came in. Uh, also true about San Francisco, and I think he's making a direct connection here. Yeah, that, you know, it's funny. I, I, I Now that you're saying that, of course that's the connection he's making. Yeah. That, 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 that art and subcultures become gentrified just like places do. Yeah, and that it's... and that people act like it's no big deal and that there's no history there. You know, um, we talked about this briefly and I don't want to get into a whole reception history thing, but a number of reviews of this movie when it came out focused on the idea of like, well, why are we so focused on black folks in San Francisco? There's all these other folks uh, sort of ignoring the idea that the 7% in San Francisco is a reduced number, that that wasn't always the case, that there were neighborhoods that were black neighborhoods. Now, it's also worth pointing out, uh, you know, we were watching this shortly after Last Black Man in San Francisco came out, a movie that reminds us that some of those historically black neighborhoods were actually before that Japanese neighborhoods, but all those folks were taken out because of the internment camps. So, um, you know, it's a complicated history, regardless of how you look at it. But uh, but I think that I really appreciated those aspects of this film. I just think on from a technical level, it, it's a little choppy. I think there's a real effort to have like a almost improvised conversation style uh, going. And sometimes that really works. Uh, uh, and sometimes it doesn't. When it when it does work, I think it's because of the strength of Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Haggins. But I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you thought about their performances. Again, not to disrespect the other people in this film, but really no one matters in yeah. this film but Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Haggins. And they managed to carry it the whole time. Do you think they did a good job? Do you think it works? What did you think about their performance? I mean, like, no one's going to get offended at you saying that. This is a two-person movie. The whole movie is spent with these two characters. The, the it when it ducks away or someone like comes in, it's only for a few lines and then they're gone. Um, I think this is a really difficult. These are both really difficult roles, right? And the they, I think they equip themselves really respectfully in those roles. I think it might have been impossible for some. Even a, like a tremendous, really experienced actor to deliver some of what they have to deliver here and make it sound realistic. So, but I think for the most part, they come off as naturalistic. I think the problem, and it's something that you touched on just a second ago, there's parts of their conversation with each other that are meant to sound relaxed, yeah. like two people just kind of shooting the shit. And I find that that's kind of the hardest part for them to kind of nail. Like when they're talking about, uh, they're playing a game where recognizing samples from different hip hop songs and like and, and and or or talking about what do you prefer uh, Super Freak or um, uh, you can't touch this that sort of thing and like that's the sort of thing that in the late '90s became all the rage right kind of this pop culture type uh, stuff that that doesn't necessarily it, it's something that kind of is beside the plot but but fills in the characters a little and you would think that that would be the thing that these two characters or these two actors would have the easiest time with. But I think that's when it feels a little bit awkward. But when they're talking about things that are inc like like insightful and important to them, like specifically their view of the world, why she wears a shirt with a female director's name on it, yeah. why he, he has the certain art that he has on his wall in his apartment, I feel like that's when they really shine. This is hard dialogue. It does not feel as... Um, as refined as we would see in Barry Jenkins' later work, particularly in Moonlight. But it's not like you're ever, it's not like you're constantly being distracted by the fact that they seem unnatural on screen. I really, um, <clears throat> I really appreciate the moments that are unbelievably awkward. 
There are just all these <laughs> moments where they are almost barely talking and they feel very tense or they don't know how to get the conversation going. Those are the best parts of the film. And it reminds me that that's how I felt about a lot of Moonlight, too. Not that there aren't some brilliant moments of dialogue, but the wordless, awkward, difficult, painful moments are as meaningful and powerful in that movie as anything, mm-hmm. almost anything anyone says. And I think what we're seeing in the snappy pop culture discussion in this first movie is a filmmaker who's still getting his legs, who's still not yes, sure. Absolutely. He's not comfortable just letting them be awkward with each other. He hasn't yet realized that those moments are actually where the brilliance is and that them talking about fucking super freak is like superfluous. You know, it's just doesn't it doesn't need to happen for us to get their interactions, if if that makes sense. Um, I don't know, though. I still think that for me, I kind of uh, so Wyatt Cenac, I think, is a much more natural actor in some ways than Tracy Higgins. You know, like he just sort of is who he is. But I really liked her performance. I think she has this difficult thing of she's being an not an asshole, but she's being purposefully standoffish. She yeah, she's absolutely being bristly, and yet you still want to spend time with her. That's a really difficult. Uh, yeah, she has to off. win back the audience, basically, right? Because right. at the beginning, you're like, oh, I want these two characters to be able to converse, but she's just being cold and won't respond to him. What's her problem? And then you find out what her deal is, and then you slowly warm to her. And then they kind of warm together as a couple as that's happening as well. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a really difficult thing to pull off. Do you think the beginning of this movie where Wyatt Snack has her information, looks her up on MySpace, and basically goes door to door trying to find her, do you think in 2020 that would be considered stalker behavior? Or is <laughs> it's that, a great question. Is that natural whatever? I mean, it's kind of messed up still. Why did he just... Why didn't he just call the guy whose party he was at and try to track her down that way? Um, I mean, still, I'd appreciate it if I lost my driver's license and my sure, wallet and sure. someone came to my door. I it may, I do think it maybe crosses a line, but that's the kind of line that I, would, uh, I wouldn't be worried about because I would get the thing that I wanted back. I think what does kind of cross the line is when he's like, you going to invite me in once he arrives? Uh, and and he, she, he kind of pushes his way into her apartment. I mean, we know where this is all heading and that it's all all cool and all that. But, you know, the fact is the every vibe that she's given him up to this point is, I don't want to spend time with you. Well, and it's a weirdly gendered uh, narrative, right, that, you know, I, I think it's intentional. I think it's intentional that the person who leaves this one-night stand feeling like, I deserve more than this. Like I deserve more of a chance to know you that I think it's intentional that that's of the man and not the woman, because I think that there is uh, at least in heterosexual relationships, a weird gender dynamic where if she was the one pursuing him, she's clingy or she can't get over it or, you know what I mean? And then the audience for some reason is just more inclined. I mean, that reason is misogyny is more inclined to be sensitive towards him, that he's the one who wants to feel connected, whatever, whatever. But then we've got the opposite gender dynamic, which is that men are more likely to actually stalk and intimidate their way into someone's life. So like as much as it's an interesting trade off that he's being in some sense clingy or attached when that would be often gendered the other way, you then have to deal with the 
question of menace. And I think the film tries really hard to eliminate any sense of menace because sure. Wyatt Sinek is one of the least menacing people in the world. You just don't get the feeling he could work up the energy to be menacing if he He tried. does have a very Liam O'Donnell vibe. I don't know if that's <laughs> offensive to say. I have to admit, I thought it several times while watching it that he has a... that I was going to tweet it and I was like, Liam might actually think that that's kind of offensive. And now I just said it out loud. <laughs> I don't think it's that offensive. I think he's more chill than I am. But I will say that... Sure. Do, do I get the most energetic? He, he gets the most energetic about issues and the least energetic about interpersonal interactions. And I think that I identify with a little bit that like I get much more passionate about abstract ideas. But but I think I'm a little more generally bubbly than Wyatt Sinek is. Wyatt Sinek just can't manage excitement for a lot of the movie, which is fine. That's not a judgment of his acting. I think it's just his personality. But I think it's only because he's like that that it takes away some of that menace. Because I think you're right. When he's at the door and he says, are you going to invite me in? If he was if he was a muscular white male, I'd be like, mm, okay, this is apparently a rape movie. Like I just would have gotten yeah. awful vibes. And it's only because of his his general persona that it didn't come across threatening at all. Um, so yeah, th- I think there's a give and take there. I think if someone said they didn't like the gender dynamics in this movie, especially when it gets around to this question. Um, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this. Cause I know for you, you probably don't feel like you have much to say, but there's this question that he brings up around uh, interracial dating, basically, you know, mm. about around people, uh, sort of dating folks who are very different from them in, in a number of ways. And I think some people would be put off by the gender dynamics of that, you know, because here's this this male and he is this, you know, cishet male pointing the finger, you know, how dare you be with a white man? Meanwhile, uh, like like that's unique or something. You know what I mean? That only, right. only uh, uh, black women do that, which we all know is not the case. And I think the film is struggling to deal with the complexity therein. You know, I think the answer he gives of yes and no is very telling, right? Because on one hand, on an individual level, you know, you can't really judge anyone. You know, like the people fall in love with who they fall in love with. And uh, it's very interesting to me. Watching this film is so much about San Francisco. I just got back from San Francisco, and two of my best friends in the world live in San Francisco, and they are uh, in a uh, black and white relationship. And, you know, I, they've had to talk to people about this because people, you know, as soon as you're in a relationship like that, people have opinions, and you have to right. live with their opinions whether you want mm-hmm. to or not. Uh, and yet, the po- larger point he makes we are in a we are in a culture and a society that teaches us that we are not the valuable people and so maybe that affects who we are attracted to is also a viable point right you can't really get down to the nitty gritty of any individual relationship i don't think and say why you fall in love with someone you just fall for who you fall for and maybe it lasts and maybe it doesn't on the other hand to assume that all of these cultural factors don't affect how we think about ourselves and about others also seems to not be the case so it's it's pretty complicated and and i i think it's put out there not to be definitive i don't think barry jenkins is making a a call here but i do think it it helps us complicate what's going on in san francisco and see how the uh the microcosm of their relationship is reflective of this larger sort of social scenario we're also i mean this is not the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on this but there's a part in the movie where he goes uh to take a shower and 
she looks at his laptop, which, by the way, maybe it didn't feel as much in 2008, but in 2020, that's like one of the most invasive things that you could 100%. possibly do. <laughs> and, to be, and to she be fo- fair, she sees that he was looking at her profile. So he, yeah. she feels a little justified, but you're right. It's still very invasive. And we learn from that uh, that he has gone through what appears to be a pretty rough breakup, right? He has like a piece of art right. that like a little a poetry thing where it has pictures of him and his ex-girlfriend, I guess, on it. Uh, so, so you know, he might be because he's been hurt and maybe hurt in recent memory that right. could also um, be pushing him towards being a little bit harder on the idea than uh, particularly because he obviously does like this uh, Tracy Haggins character and wants to pursue something with her and recognizes that she keeps pulling back for very, I think, reasonable reasons. Yeah, she's in a relationship. But she's I think, in her re- a relationship. But I think the underlying question he never verbalizes, right, is that the, unless she's in an open relationship, right, something mm-hmm. has gone wrong. You know, he's right. not he's not making an assumption out of nowhere. Clearly, there's evidence that something is not going well and, and so, he did not know that she was in a relationship when right, they slept together. exactly that, that's exactly. also made very clear in the movie exactly and so um but yeah i think you're, you're right there's there's that personal thing going on there i think also um part of what the film is, gets at a little bit is this feeling of like uh and i, I don't think it, it there's a moment where he is talking to her and, and he wants he, he sort of identifies that the first word that he identifies with himself is black right and and i think that that sort of is off-putting to her and i'm sure is off-putting to other people in the audience like well, why would you just focus on that but it is this interesting place where racialized people find themselves because you don't necessarily want to feel limited you know there's there's on one hand this idea that like maybe that that racialized identity does not encompass everything that you want to say about who you are. On the other hand, for a lot of folks, especially black folks who have gone through the most uh, racialization and oppression within the United States, is this feeling of like, well, but you don't want to deny it either. You know what I mean? Like right. maybe, it, maybe it can't be the whole story, but it has to be part of the story, right? And so I, I think that's partly what the film is getting at. And, and I think because it is a first film and it is a new director i'm not convinced he's made his mind up about what these Mm -hmm. characters are saying i don't think this is a move this is a message movie the way that i think honestly having read some reviews people kind of took it like well he's got a clear thing he's figured out well yeah i don't know that he does i think he's working it out to me it's like the boat this isn't a situation where Wyatt Santa's character is right and tracy Hagen's character is wrong they have perspectives on things that differ and they're both right from their own experience and i think like you said I think Barry Jenkins agrees with both of them and in some ways disagrees with them as well because these are complex issues and things that he's struggling with. And that's what's on screen is the struggle, right? Right. I mean, I think there's some suggestion with her relationship when she's basically living as sort of like (laughs) as someone who doesn't have any of their own resources or income. Mm -hmm. I think there's some inherent not judgment, but you know, you're supposed to get the feeling that uh, that this isn't representative of all these sorts of relationships. But this particular situation might not be a good one. You know what I mean? That there's right. there's something about this that feels very 
she lacks any agency, and that doesn't seem to be uh, that seems to be a weird choice that she has made to to not have any sort of feet in the world. You know what I mean? Um, on the other hand, he doesn't focus too long on it. He's it's not about he's not trying to make a case. Like the the door is open there for you as an audience to think. I wonder what's going on here, but the movie isn't going to solve that for you, and I, and I think that works. Um, it, what do you? I actually am curious. What did? What was your take on the reveal of what he does for a living? Which is that he installs aquariums, and he has an aquarium in his own apartment. It the movie doesn't. Uh, the reveal is isn't isn't uh, suggested to be this big deal, but they do spend a lot of time on it, and then they actually walk through like the locations that he goes to and how he gets his fish and that sort of thing. What did you think that was supposed to to kind of spell out in the movie? I don't know. I, I thought it was just something unexpected. It was something mm-hmm. to surprise you. And it was something that um, shows a bit of an artistic soul. You know, like when he's doing that, he makes it pretty clear he's he's curating. You know, he's, yes. he's doing something very creative and he's creating an environment. And I, I think that the film is obsessed with the idea of place her neighborhood versus his neighborhood. And for people who aren't familiar with San Francisco, I mean, there's a lot of insider information in this film, but she lives in an area that is not just very white, but very rich. And he lives in an area that uh, is bad and has been bad for a long time. If by bad, we mean filled with crime, you know, and not very safe. And in fact, people who have been to the Tenderloin in the last 10 years will know that the city has made a concerted effort to push all of their non-housed citizens into that neighborhood. So now besides the usual sort of difficulties of poverty, it's also got tent cities everywhere. So right, right, right. things have gotten even even more difficult and less attractive, let's say, than they were when this film was made. And so uh, I think there's something being said there about like, he's in this little apartment, he's in a poorer part of town, he's got a bit of an edge, so what's he going to do? And it's it's very easy for the audience to make an assumption about that. But, That's right. But he is artistic and he's creative and he's interesting. And remember, we're in San Francisco. So if, if honestly, as small as his apartment is, if he said anything lower in the income scale than <laughs> graphic design, then the movie's lost all credibility because right, he couldn't afford right. to live there. Um, you know what I mean? Like what he does is not high end, but it's high enough end that he can pay his bills. Do you think... Now that that I have made that mental connection about that 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 gentrification takes all these different forms, and that maybe is what the core of a lot of what this movie is about. This movie does take a moment to actually stop, and our two main characters they look into what is basically like a roundtable of people discussing gentrification in San Francisco. That did you think that was self indulgent? Did you think that it actually kind of kind of reinforced the point at the core in case anyone missed it? How did you feel that that moment played out? I, I, I am sure, I'm 100% sure that for a lot of people it plays like a weird break and it, maybe it played a bit like an infomercial, like just like a dump. But for me, it is so on the mind of people, long-term residents of San Francisco, when I was there this past year, um, it's still something that everyone's talking about all the time and they were talking about it for a long time. And, and um, it, it's really telling to me that when I read reviews of this movie when it came out, the general feeling was that th- these were alarmists. This was a meaning of crazy alarmists that right. things couldn't possibly be that bad and that um, they would all be proven wrong. And, and, and it's really a distraction from the movie 
about an issue that isn't real. And I don't think you need to be a super connected political person to know it's clearly worse than what they're describing in that meeting. Um, I mean, not so bad because they didn't completely eliminate, uh, they didn't end up eliminating um, rent control. So there are still some rent control properties. But the tech boom has made things even worse in San Francisco because people have moved up from Palo Alto and and, uh, that Silicon Valley up to San Francisco and there's been more gentrification and more price gouging and um, the number of places that are putting on a sort of authentic San Francisco-ness just to exist because it's considered cool but in reality a lot of the actual culture has been pushed out for a while now so uh, I I, I think that uh, for me as a viewer and maybe this is my bias because I just was there and I just watched mm-hmm. Last Black Man in San Francisco. And so all these issues around San Francisco are on my mind. Like, let me be really clear, too, with folks that it, it kind of came across to me a little bit in this movie, but it, it's how I think about it. Like, Doug, do you have anyone in your past that's like the love that got away, like the the impossible uh, a person who you know it, partly because you never did connect with them you can't idealize what it might have been you know what I, mean? I mean i'm a 40 year old guy who grew up in the internet generation yes of course i have someone like yeah, that in my exa- path. exactly exactly so what i'm saying to you is that is san francisco for me right san francisco is this beautiful wonderful charming city one of the most beautiful places i've ever been in my life just a magical place and yet Going in, I knew I could never live there. That right. that the sort of lottery you would have to win, and 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 I mean that quite literally. Just to get a rent controlled place is lottery. Let alone that you'll have enough money to afford your rent controlled place. So like the melancholy of this city, of this movie towards where they are and the position that they're in, rang true for me. You know, it, it rang true because even my friends who are there who are getting by and having wonderful lives, they all feel like they're on the precipice of it all right. coming apart and then having yeah. to move somewhere it's else. It's impossible to thrive, right? Because you're never going to be in that position where you can, it, it's, it's, I don't know if this is reflective of a lot of major cities, but I have lots of friends, obviously who live in Toronto, uh, sure. which I'm, I, I mean, I, I guess is as comparative as a city that I've experienced for extended periods of time. Uh, obviously there's a lot of differences there, but these are people, a lot of artistic people living in a place that's extremely expensive to yeah. live in and they're surrounded by all these amazing experiences that they can't experience because they can't afford it because all the money that they make goes into being able to stay there. Well, and I think, you know, it's a, it's, it is very similar to that. I think there's also a mystique. Like people who live in San Francisco also love the idea of San Francisco more right. than I think almost anywhere else except for New York. The difference, of course, being is that San Francisco isn't as big as New York. So, you know, if you're so in love with New York, you could still probably find a hidey hole somewhere to be a part of New York. But San Francisco right. really isn't that big, physically big. And right. so, like, you could find yourself at best across the bay and even then maybe not being able to, to cling on. So there's something about that moment to me that is not disruptive to the narrative. It's giving you more context. Like, like it is for me that why people have this feeling of almost embattlement in San Francisco, that if you are one of these folks, you're not new, you've been there for a long time and it's part of who you are. You are in some sense, 
people who who are from there they feel to me almost like refugees you know like right. they're like hanging they're clinging on like this is where they need to be and it's it's hard it's not easy and and i'm sure for some folks for whom moving is just a part of your life this all seems very dramatic and overstated but there is something about san francisco that is so charming i'm not surprised that people never want to leave that they want that to be their forever home you know what i mean right mm-hmm Anyway, there is a part I, I, I should ask you this because I didn't really get it in, in the context of the movie. There's a part where right near the beginning where the two characters are on a hilltop. Uh, actually, I guess it's a little bit later in the movie, but they're, they're looking over San Francisco or they're looking over something. And and why Senex's character says that it looks like L.A. And she says that she's never been to L.A. I thought that was kind of an unusual thing to say. Is that unusual that, that people wouldn't travel that far within their own you know, I thought if you live in San Francisco, you think that everyone would have spent at least some time in L.A. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that sort of speaks to something about this character that I, I, she seems very sheltered to me. Like, I think mm. that's part of what it's communicating. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, But the drive to L.A. is pretty far. I mean, it's worth remembering that California is a irrationally lar- long state. <laughs> and so driving down to LA, it's something people do a lot, but I'll be honest, like, you know, uh, I think it's comparable in my world of, I mean, I have to look it up, but I think if I was driving from like New York to uh, like Virginia beach, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like, why would I drive all that way to do what, you know? Um, right. And, and I, and you know, I do think San Francisco is one of those places where people do kind of get it, it, in, embedded in whatever. But is it representative of a lot of people? I don't know. A lot of my friends, I don't have a ton of friends in San Francisco, but the friends that I do have are often connected to the arts. So eventually they're mm-hmm. going to go to L.A. for something. You know, right, the same right. way that people in L.A. are going to come up to San Francisco for something. But it's not like a quick jaunt. You know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, I, sure. I used to, when I was living in, PA, it was less than two hours to Philadelphia, and I would cry about it. You know, I'd be like, "Ugh, two hours! I don't want to drive two hours." Well, I think it's six hours to LA, yeah, yeah. so or maybe more than that, <laughs> depending on traffic. So it's it's you know, who am I to say like, "Oh, I can't believe you never drove down there." It's also I'm thinking of it from a really skewed perspective, right? So like where I grew up in Newfoundland, if <laughs> if anything was happening, it wasn't where I lived. It was happening in St. John's, which is basically the major city in all of that entire province. Sure. So now that I live in this part of Ontario, Toronto is that place, right? Every, if, if a band is coming to Ontario, they're going to go to Toronto. So you go to Toronto and you see that band. But that's not where it's going to be like. Like lots of incredible artists come to San Francisco because it's a huge city right. with tons of people. So it's not like you have to go to another place in order to experience this amazing kind of higher level art, uh, which, again, I'm not trying to say that high level art isn't made in smaller places either. But you know what I mean, right? If you ha- if you love a band, I grew up knowing that uh, and I ma- it's kind of a cliche back in Newfoundland. People do Canadian coast to coast tours and they stop in Nova Scotia and they never make it to Newfoundland, no one, because it's an island. So that extra expense is, is not something that a lot of bands are even ever willing to do. So uh, for me, I'm always thinking about where's the closest major city, but that's not really how it necessarily works in parts mm. of the US where people are driving from place to place. I also wonder um, about the line itself. Like, I just found it a little confusing that he was like, uh, you know, with the hill that looks like L.A. Because yeah. San Francisco is irrationally hilly. 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's kind of what people know about it. If you yeah. don't know anything else, you know that it's a hilly place. Yeah, it's even more hilly than you think. If you've never been there, it's mm. worse than you think. Like, there are poor parts of the city that I would never walk across because you'd have to cross this insane fucking hill to even think about getting to that part. <laughs> like I, I, you know, there were multiple times where we would start walking to a new neighborhood and then realize we had to go over one of the hills and just immediately get a lift. Cause it was like, I'm not walking over this hill. <laughs> like I just can't do that. That's just not a reality. So <laughs> it just seemed like a weird line in general. It may be something you say when you're drunk, you know, that doesn't right. really mean anything. You know what I'm saying? So, I or it might, be, it might be not actually what he's seeing, but what he's thinking, right? It's like, right. is this becoming more like L.A.? Well, and that's also a, a comment in and of itself as well. Uh, I, I was kind of curious for you, Doug. Like, for me, this question around gentrification, around um, relationships and race and all this stuff that's going on in the film, it... it if it all very much connected with me, I was wondering for you, like you've already said, like it's interesting. Did you ever feel like it was too much? You know, like I, I, the, the some of the reviews I read, it, it saw all this other stuff besides their relationship as like superfluous or distracting. Um, was that the case for you? Did you feel alienated by it? Were you still able to connect with it? What What was your sort of response about that content specifically? Yeah, I mean, I I thought, look, if you're living in the world in most places in the western world in 2020 gentrification is something that you're probably thinking about i think about it in my daily life every single day as the rent prices where i live go up and up and up and toronto starts to approach where i live and uh, the people from toronto come here because it's more quiet and it's within driving distance of toronto and soon this place won't exist anymore and then i'll move Right right now, if I was to move out of my apartment, I wouldn't be able to afford a place of similar size or even close. It's only because I've been here long enough that I've been able to keep uh, living in a place that has a reasonable rent. And that reasonable rent would be unreasonable to another person. And I'm not even in a place that most people, when they think of Ontario, would even recognize the name of. So certainly that sort of issue and the way that people are pushed out of spaces and how particularly... Uh, people who who want to focus their lives in artistic fields are pushed out of it because there's less and less money in those areas. I mean, that's something that this movie doesn't necessarily tangle with directly all the time, but certainly something that I'm interested in and something that I'm curious about. My only problem with that, and maybe this is something that's echoed in some of those reviews you read, is that I see what this movie is saying, and I'm like, well, I guess that's the reality, right? That the The conversation that they're having here is how people of color see that in there. But there's probably other perspectives that I'm not getting from this, that I'm not hearing, right? But what it does is that it pushes me in that direction to, well, maybe I should find out more about this. Maybe I should investigate this on my own. And I think that's a really healthy thing too. This is just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the joke. This is just one man's opinion. No, this is like a perspective, right? And you're getting a perspective from these two characters who have different viewpoints and uh, you're getting them and sometimes they're contradicting each other and sometimes they're arguing with each other. And I think that one of the things that this movie does best is that it creates two different voices in these characters and they feel very distinct from one another but also still feel very real so in that case i i always was engaged with their conversations with each other around those different issues it's actually when it kind of floated away from that like i said when they go dancing and when it's just supposed to be kind of trying to add some flavor to things that i felt less interested in where the movie was going didn't i mean here's the thing i i kind of defended that scene as not being as painful as i think you found it but i will say in general 
um, a, a skinny tie bar in 2008 does seem kind of like torture, right? Like but this like white guy spinning records at the front. I mean, it just really it. it I understand it was they. I guess they kind of had to show a part of the culture that they've been referring to. You know, this kind of indie thing that they're they that they enjoy. But it's just you know, it, it, maybe in the back of my mind, it was making me think of that scene from The Matrix too. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I won't go that far, but I will say no, no. Of I, course, I will not, say right? while I still find found it in some ways useful, it's a little long, and I yeah. and I do think like that that thing that they're into, the thing that they have in common that clearly has brought them together in some way, is like so kind of annoying to me in its own <laughs> sense, you know. Right. That I I uh, you know. My, uh, a lot of my favorite indie bands were just dudes who used to be in hardcore bands and started playing something else. So this whole other thing that happened in the 2000s that became its own kind of thing, like there are parts of it I like, but in some ways that that whole scene where he's complaining about being black and indie, uh, it, it, part of me is kind of like, well, but indie's not that cool. You like, you'll get over it. <laughs> so, but you know, that I don't think that takes seriously the larger issue that that speech could have been about punk or hardcore sure or absolutely anything, anything and, that isn't isn't that hasn't been categorized as quote-unquote black yeah 100 percent. you know and so uh i think it it still has meaning it's just hard because the thing that he feels like he is 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 uh he has this difficult relationship with is something i don't particularly care about but you know if he was talking about cosplay i would have been just as alienated but i don't think it, <laughs> you know what i mean um uh, anyway so i i think that would be a good time to sort of wrap up a little bit and talk about sure. uh, sort of the question of the show is, is this a forgotten gem or not? And, and I think it's worth sort of measuring it in both ways. Is, is this a gem that people should give another chance to? And is it really forgotten or, or have we just not heard people talk about it? It's, I don't hear a lot of people talk about this movie. Yeah, and if you either. go to things like Letterboxd, it's not like it has this tons of reviews or anything like that. And considering the impact that Moonlight had on uh, film criticism, on film as a whole, on audiences, I mean, everyone was talking about it. Certainly after the Academy Awards, everyone was talking about it. But even leading up to it, this was a movie that got just an unbelievable amount of buzz. And it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. At least Barry Jenkins kind of felt like he came out of nowhere. Because the jump from Medicine for Melancholy to Moonlight is so huge, but it wasn't just like a straight jump, right? It was, this was someone who spent the time in between these movies uh, finding more of his voice and refining these elements and becoming a stronger filmmaker. So when he made Moonlight, when he had the these, these more resources and these stronger performers, that he was able to make the movie that he wanted to make, and, and it showed that the talent was there. But watching this movie, you can already see the nascent version of that talent. And that's right. why I think it is a forgotten gem in the sense that if you haven't experienced this movie, if maybe you haven't heard the uh, that it's as good as Moonlight, no, it's not. This not is not a movie that is as good as Moonlight. If someone tries to make that argument, they're being ridiculous. However, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that this is still a very worthwhile movie, and you can see the artist that was going to make Moonlight in this movie. I agree. I think it's, I mean, it's worth admitting that the insane cultural, I mean, Moonlight, when it comes to uh, a cultural phenomena, is almost like an unpredictable event in that uh, the small movie that has everything going against it, right, um, 
in the sense that it is very black and it is very queer and it is mm-hmm. um, dealing seriously with poverty and urban and all this stuff. And it has it has names in it. I'm not going to pretend like there aren't famous people in the movie, but it it also highlights some people that certainly were not well known. Um, became this huge thing. It became this right. moment. If you had told me the year before Moonlight that a film that has a you know basically a hand job on the beach would become like uh, an important part of our culture, I would have said you're 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 dreaming big, man. That's not real. That's not going to happen. And and it did. And I think those moments where something does well financially and it does well critically and it actually has great representation and it wins a fucking Oscar, which I don't yeah, think I mean, anyone and, was prepared yeah, for. Yeah, and now let's make it clear, and I don't think anyone would think this, but we're not saying that winning an Oscar is representative no. of quality necessarily. And some of the, the choices even since that movie uh, has really have really shown that out. But in terms of making an impact culturally – right. A, that's a huge thing, and B, the way that this particular movie won Best Picture was, I mean, people were talking about it, and I think people will be talking about it 50 on 100 years from now if the planet lasts that long. So I think that's the the thing, is that it is such a singular moment that I almost feel like people only care about this movie, Medicine for Melancholy, in retrospect. It only counts. In the sense that he did something before Moonlight, that this wasn't a complete whatever. And I think that what you're saying, that knowing what he did, not just this movie even, but maybe some of the short films and other things that sort of developed his style, it's worth knowing just so that we get away from this idea that happens sometimes when you have a moment as singular and as important as Moonlight that that came out of nowhere. That that, right. that that he just has all this talent and that talent just, you know, whatever. And you could never and not realize like, oh, he started someplace with something that was pretty good. And then he developed over time over actually in the world of filmmaking, a pretty long period of yeah, time. Absolutely. And so I think that is a historical thing worth knowing. And when it comes to Forgotten Gems. I wouldn't say it's forgotten, but I would say it is uh, name-checked. It's the equivalent of in music. You know, there's T-shirt bands, those mm-hmm. bands that people always get the shirt for, but no one actually owns the records. That's uh-huh. how I feel about this movie, that people name-check it all the time and then admit that they've never seen it. And I see that happen a lot, and I was one of those people. I could have told you when it came out, who was fucking in it, and all this stuff, but I had never made time to watch it. And so I think if you're out there and you're maybe feeling a bit like a poser right now because you never made time for this movie, I just want to encourage you to do it because I think that it is very interesting to see how the person who made this movie would become the person who made Moonlight and then by extension, If Beale Street Could Talk, which I think is also an amazing film. I think that it, it something you just mentioned there, that you're kind of disrupting a narrative too, right? It's one of the things that bothers me about the fact that a lot of filmmakers' short films are never made publicly available in that you see these directors and it's like their first movie. Look at this huge success that they've made. And it's it, like they already have all the skill there. And it's just like, well, how did that happen? It, no one just comes out of nowhere. No one is just handed this money unless they're the son of a famous director or something like that. But, I mean, it's a case where this is a step in the evolution of a career that led to and is continuing to lead to really wonderful, artistic, interesting, uh, well-crafted movies. And this movie doesn't have all of those elements there yet, but you don't get that without this. So, uh, but you're right. I kind of, maybe I somewhat unfairly presented it as a stepping stone as opposed to something worthwhile in its own right. I think this is a good movie that, 
maybe if Barry Jenkins was to make it now with like the same concept, maybe sure. not the same yeah. script, but if he was to try to make a movie like this again, it would be a great movie because of the kind of filmmaker he is now. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to watch it and to talk about it. Um, and I hope you all enjoyed our conversation about it. And I think we both encourage uh, you to go out and check it out for yourself and let us know what you think and how you think it holds up to his other films. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about 1987's Heat and Sunlight, directed by Rob Nilsson. Uh, it won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1988 Sundance Film Festival. And it was nominated for Best Feature at the 1990 Independent Spirit Awards, which is weird. That's a big jump there. Sure. Two year gap. And then Mm -hmm. it was from 87. So I don't know. I guess we'll talk about it on that episode. Uh, But until then, you should check out uh, some of our other episodes. Doug, if they're interested in hearing more of Cinema Smorgasbord, including uh, some of our other shows, as well as apparently the feed drop of uh, my show Horror Business, where would they go to to (laughs) hear that uh, those episodes? If you want to hear the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord, you can go over to cinepunks.com. Check out all the podcasts over there, including a few others featuring one Mr. Liam O'Donnell. Uh, we did on the most, uh, because we had a little gap before this episode, we put up an episode on our feed of Horror Business. You can find that over at cinepunks.com. If you want to check out all episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord, just go to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Or if you want to go on social media, do a search on Facebook or go to Cinema Smorg on Twitter. That's S-M-O-R-G. If you find us on iTunes, there's a link over on our website. You can uh, Leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Helps to get the word out. Uh, We have a lot of different themed podcasts on that website, including ones devoted to artists as diverse as Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, Vic Diaz, and Steve Buscemi, and more. Uh, So check them out. Let us know what you think. Leave us feedback, and uh, we always appreciate it. And of course, if you want to just find out what we're up to, if you want to see the ever-evolving world of Liam O'Donnell, you can check him out on uh, Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Or you can check me out there at Doug underscore Tilly. That's (gasps) T-I-L-L. E-Y. If you are curious about other Cinepunk stuff too, Cinepunks is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. We are the one and only. Go ahead and find us. Uh, and we just want to say thank you for checking us out. Uh, hopefully you can tell a friend about the show. Uh, but until then, we just want to say have a good evening, night, or afternoon. <laughs> good night. Swept away by the river now The found me Found it out now Like a brand in your hand And who, little girl, are you now? Oh, I laugh for the advance But I know you play like you don't know how What your voice might